Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn back to where we've been for the last couple of weeks, Proverbs chapter 8, working our way through this. Last week, if you were here or you listened to uh, the tape, getting caught up on it, you know that we laid out probably the most incredible passage in all of the Bible, a passage that, without a doubt, uh, deals with the very core of the theme and the issue of the Bible, and that is Christ's deity. If Jesus Christ was not God, then we're pretty much uh, left to our own self, and that is the whole purpose of, of the gospel and, and really the core of Christianity. And Proverbs chapter 8 is that deep chapter that goes way beyond, you know, just the surface of things and, and deals with the two major questions that almost in time and virtually everybody asks, and that is who Christ is and where Christ came from, the eternalness of God. So, and today uh, we're going to see, uh, we dealt with that last week, we're going to look at the last couple of verses here, and again today we'll see a great characteristic of God. Uh, you know, there's no question in my mind that the greatest characteristic of God is His love for, for, for His creation. And um, it's, a, it's a tremendous thing that you see not only through the Bible, but you see all down through history, and if you look uh, at your own life, you see it in, in your own life. Uh, that, uh, you know, his great desire and love for, for mankind uh, whom he created. And it's, it, to me, as I read down through here, I see the trend of God. And I see this many, many times in the Bible. You know, after he takes verses 20 through through 31 and he talks about his son. And he goes into great elaborate detail. As I've said, we laid it out last two weeks. Some of the most incredible detail uh, in depth of God. Uh, at the time of creation and where, where Christ and how all of that works and what the purpose was and, and God's purpose for stepping out of the Godhead in the person of Christ. And boy, that is some incredible stuff. But after he does that, he takes you behind the scenes and shows you and me how that God has come down in the fashion of a man to simply to reach man. And then he does in our text today what he always does. He then takes the last part of what he said, and then he gives an invitation. That's simply what he does. He gives an invitation to man to receive all that God has done for him. And that's exactly what he does here in this passage. Uh, it's so characteristic of God. I, I see it, uh, you see it in great detail as a great example is the book of Revelation. You know, I think the book of Revelation where uh, throughout 22 chapter, God tells about the revelation that he gave to John and all that he's done, all that he's doing then and all that he's going to do. He talks about the church age in great depth. He talks about the rapture in chapter 4. Chapter 5, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And, of course, uh, chapter uh, uh, 6 on up through chapter uh, 18 or 19, he talks about the tribulation period. He talks about the Antichrist, great detail on it. He talks about the great tribulation with the plagues and the vials and all of the judgments that fall. He tells in that great book of Revelation about God's dealing with Israel in chapter 12. How like she's a woman in travail that's pained to be delivered. And how that the devil, the great red dragon, goes after her to try to destroy her. It not, only, it not only deals with the aspect of what's going on in the tribulation period. It shows you the panoramic picture of what's been going on down through history. He talked about the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe that evangelized the Gentiles during the tribulation period. He talked about the great battle of Armageddon, that great battle where uh, all of the Antichrist comes together in his forces to wipe out the nation of Israel. He talks about the second coming in chapter 19 when the Lord comes back in verse 11. He talks about the marriage of the Lamb when you and I as Christians are finally united with the Lord and we have that consummation of our relationship with him. He talks about the millennium in chapter 20. In chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth come down from God. In chapter 22, he starts out talking about the, uh, uh, the great aspect of eternity. And yet after, in the book of Revelation, after all of that, after he lays out all of that stuff of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do, you know what he does in the last part of Revelation? He gives an invitation. It's the last invitation in the Bible. Again, one more time, he takes the last 10 verses and gives man 
an invitation to find God through his son. The final invitation in the Bible. Every time seemingly that God lays out some great truth about himself or something that he's doing, almost instinctively he comes back and at that it's almost like uh, the Holy Spirit of God can't wait. to. He has to give that invitation. You know, without a doubt for me, and I, I've been through Proverbs chapter 8 many, many times. And, you know, as I told you the other day, uh, I found something in there last week when I was getting ready that changed my whole outlook on things in the Bible uh, in, in, in some areas. And, and it's always been a great chapter. But I got to tell you, for me, the greatest aspect of Proverbs chapter 8 and all that God says is not the deep truths of the Bible, though I cherish those, and they're very, very important but rather the simple, plain truth that shows me how much God loves us and wants us to be saved. It it, it never ceases to amaze me how no matter what God is doing in the Bible, no matter how deep he's getting, no matter what great doctrine he's laying out, he never loses sight of the need that we have as, as, as men and women. And in this case, salvation. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. And the, and the context there is, is praying for people to be saved when you read it. In, in verse 4, he goes on and says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why, even when God made hell in, in, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, I've told you this many, many times. Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God never intended in his, it, it never intended for man to wind up in a place like that. It's like the Holy Spirit of God cannot tell you about God or God's Son without extending an invitation for a man to believe it and to accept it. And this is what you have in the closing verses of Proverbs chapter 8, verses 32 through 36. After all that he's talked about, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, now he gives an invitation. Now he gives an invitation for man to choose and to accept and to believe what God has said. God extending himself one more time to us, to man, his fallen creation, who needs God so desperately to be saved and to walk in God's light and under the protection of all that God gives us. In these last five verses in, the, in, this, uh, uh, in, this, in, in Proverbs, it's like the Holy Spirit of God uh, almost steps out of the Scriptures to bring man to the understanding of how much we need God and all that God has done to give himself to man. And you know, fundamentally, when you think about it, This is why an unsaved man can't get saved, or maybe I should say won't get saved. He's blinded. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the devil, the God of this world, hath blinded man, that he can't see the glorious gospel light. He's blinded. He can't see who Christ really is and the fact that he's lost. He can't understand and grasp the simple truth, not only without understanding who God is or who Christ is, but what he's done for him. So he goes through life like a ship on a sea without a compass. He goes wherever the current takes him, but he has no direction in life. He has no purpose. He has no course set of where he wants to get to. The fact that he's lost and how he lives on the dead-end street of life and will never be complete without a relationship with God. This is fundamentally why an unsaved man can't grasp the things of God. The fact that he can't get who Christ is and he can't get to the fact of what Christ has done for him. And yet, I see the same thing many times with many of God's people. They're saved, but their life is totally opposite to what the Bible says a Christian life should be. I've seen Christians whose lives were absolutely, totally dysfunctional. Tragic. On a scale from 1 to 10, they're a 15 plus. Their life is upside down. Their life, uh, it's, it's the worst that you've ever seen. Instead of the Bible getting them through life on a daily basis, they have to, they have to, they have to hold on to uh, something else out there in life. We talked about Thursday night, one of the great questions out of Second Chronicles chapter 16 was about King Asa. 
And somebody asked a question about in the story in the Bible that King Asa was a good man. He did a lot of good things. Bible says even his heart was perfect before the Lord. But then it comes to a point in his life where the Bible says that Asa got a disease in his feet. And when he got a disease in his feet, he had a choice. He could either go to God with that disease, but he chose to go to the physicians. The greatest medical minds of his day instead of going to the physician of physicians. And the Bible says that he died. And I know that's a true story in the Old Testament. Asa is listed in the line of kings. I know the story's correct, and I know the story's true. But from a practical standpoint, it, it reflects on your life and my life because the Bible says he had a disease in his feet. For me, that translates, that's a picture of a Christian who begins to have problems in his walk with God. And we all struggle with things in our life. God's people, many times, because their life is so tragic and their life is so in much upheaval, is simply because of the fact that they have a problem with their walk with God. And instead of coming back to the Bible and, and getting with God and, 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 and letting God work through the problems and God give them the things that they need, they won't. They'll go to the things of this world. They'll go to psychiatry. They'll go to a therapist. They'll, go to, they'll be up, put on Prozac or some other drug that will just slow down the process of your thinking. But will never solve the problem because the problem is not a physiological problem, folks. The problem is your walk with God and that's spiritual. Hey, don't get mad at me. I wish there was a pill I could take when I get out of fellowship. Amen. Not only would I get me a big supply, I'd buy all of you some. I'd make you take one before you came in, like malaria pills, like we used to take in the army. I wish there was something that I could take. I wish there was some medicine that I could take when I get a disease in my feet with my walk with God. But there's not, because it's a spiritual issue. And just like an unsaved man can't find God for his salvation, many times a saved man or woman can't find God in their problems because they won't come back to that simple, fundamental promise principle found in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible of who Christ is and what he's done for us. We lose sight of it. We get, we get depressed in life. We go through great struggles in life, a life without any light, because, yes, we try to have... We have lost sight of that tremendous truth. For us as Christians, it simply comes down to the basic understanding of a very basic, simple truth. Who Christ is in your life and understanding and acting on what he did for you. It's just that simple. And God's people either will or they will not do that. You know, in all of our lives, and this is true of everybody, there have been people who have made a difference in our lives as we've grown up. I know there's men in my life that have done that. When I was in high school, there was one or two teachers that I had that really shaped the course of my thinking and, and direction in life. I know that when I was in the service, there were men who, who um, changed my outlook on things. There were teachers, I'm sure, in your lives. Uh, many times, my mom and my dad, and they weren't perfect Christians by any stretch of the imagination, but they, they instilled in me things that changed me for the better, and I'm sure you can look in your life. Sometimes it's been a pastor or a preacher or a youth worker, but there'll be somebody in your life and a time in your life that they affected you, and they affected you in the course of your life that, that helped mold you and shape you, and, and I tell you, there can be people that will affect you badly just as there can be a people who affect you in a good way. But when we meet Christ, when Christ becomes our own personal Savior, it should completely change who we are completely. It's a transforming. Where others may mold you, others may conform you, others may inform you, others may misinform you. The Bible does something that humans cannot do. The Bible transforms you. And that's a spiritual thing. And that comes because there's been many people in my life that I have met who have changed me for the better, but there's one man that I met that changed me for all of eternity. And he, he's better than all the rest. And that's the whole concept here. In every way, he changes who we are, but it doesn't, unfortunately, in many people's lives. They just, instead of taking... Uh, letting God change them, they carry their former issues right on into their new life with Christ. 
and it, it just never seemingly gets any better. They never really change on the outside. They just put God in their back pocket and go right on doing what they simply want to do. Now, in this closing of this great chapter, let's look at this invitation that God has extended to us. This is just as important as all the deep things that we have gotten so far out of this thing, probably more important. But let's look at this invitation that God has extended to us after all that he's given us about simply who Christ is and what he has done for us. And we'll look at these last six verses here. Let me read it for you, starting in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 32. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instructions and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Now, Father, thank you for these closing verses here of this great invitation for us to find you and Uh, based on what you've told us already in this chapter, all that you have for us. And help us today to come to uh, the, the Word of God with an open heart and an open mind. Help us to look at these things and to see and understand exactly how uh, they can impact us and they can change us in a lasting way. And Lord, these are good people here today. They, they, they're not, uh, they may have their issues. They may have their problems. We, we may not always do what's right. And we may be away from you today. But Lord, uh, if they're your child here today, and I know you love them, and I know they love you. They may struggle with things at times, but Lord, I just pray that you'll help us today, all of us. Don't let this message just be to them. Let it be through me, to me, to them. And help me, Father, in everything that we do to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 32 starts out with my favorite phrase in the Bible because it always helps me understand the context. Now, therefore, now, therefore, always is a key to tie the verses and the passages together. When he says, now, therefore, he's going to tell you something based on what he just told you. You want to always remember that when it comes to your Bible. It'll help you immensely when it comes to figuring out the context. Therefore, now, therefore, uh, will always be a, a connecting rod to what he's just said to what he's now going to say. Many times it'll be the conclusion of what he's going to put it all into a, an understandable format for you, and basically what he does here. And he says, because what I've just told you, because of what you've just read and studied, I want you to understand something and I want you to do something. That's what he's saying here. And the first thing I want to say to you is, after all, we're talking about two aspects here now, who Christ is and what he's done for us. And the first thing I want to start out today by talking with you for a few minutes is after all that God has done for us, once you realize who he is and you realize what he has done to come down to man, I want you to know today that because of that, God expects a response to his coming to man. God expects something from us. Staying silent on a matter will never work. This is why nowhere in the Bible does God ever acknowledge a Christian that simply sits on the sidelines of life while people die and go to hell and God's plan unfolds itself. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where it ever legitimizes a person who is just a nominal Christian. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, they're either in or they're out. And you find that where this came in our Christian world today, I have no idea. But the farther we get from the Bible, the farther that middle of the ground has become a normal thing, when in the Bible, it's an abnormal thing. It's never been accepted. I have a message that I used to preach. You don't preach it anymore because it's uh, God's people are so, you know, they're so sensitive, you know, you got to, you got to, I preach messages today on your favorite color, you know, uh, what's warm and soothing to you. We don't, have an, we don't have a relationship with Christ here in this church. We have an encounter. We have a 
we have a, anyway. Uh, so, but I, in the day when you could still preach, and I mean, I still preach, but, but there was a time where you, when I used to go around all over the place, and I'll tell you what, it was Katie Bartador. And there, this is one of those old messages. And I, I try, I don't usually title my messages, but I put a title this to help me with the impact of this message. And the title of it, What's the Difference? And I would get up at the people and I would simply say, I want to ask you today, basically, about something. What's the difference? And I would build it on the verse over there in now, I think it's Luke chapter 6, I think verse 46, 47, someplace in there, where it says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, not do the things which I say? Amen. Know that verse? Yes, sir. Well, you don't want to know that verse, but if you do know that verse, you're, in, you're, yeah. you're okay. But I, I would start with that. And I would say, you know what, I just, I, this is not going to be a long message tonight, though it turned out to be longer than they thought it would be. But I said, I just want to ask you a three or four basic simple questions. Because I'm confused today in the Christian world, and a lot of things have got me confused, and I figured that this was the church, and you're all good, godly people. Surely somebody here could help me with this answer. So I'm going to preach a message, and I hope that by the time I'm done tonight and out of here, you know, shaking hands, or somebody will come up to me and give me the answer. But I want to question is, what's the difference? What is the difference? And here's where I'd start. I had four points to it, and I'm, I preach it longer than I'm just going to show you what I used to say. I'd say, what's the difference between an atheist who would, who would not dream of financially supporting a church and a Christian who won't either? And I do this what I did right there for effect. Let it sink in. You don't want to move to the next one too quickly. You want that to kind of like Ben Gay, you know. Or, I don't use the word gay anymore. Ben, uh, ben Ralph or whatever. And you rub it in, you know, and it shoes down in your muscles, you know. You got to let it kind of rub in a little bit. The second question I'd ask them is, what's the difference? What's the difference between a skeptic who don't, doesn't believe the Bible and a Christian who doesn't read it either? Yeah, it's soaking. I feel it. My third one. What's the difference between an atheist who won't step inside a church and a Christian who won't go to church either? And I'd ask these questions. And the fourth one is where I, you know, where I kind of come, got my feet on the ground with them. I say, what's the difference between a man who lives in this world and a Christian who lives like the world? And my point was, when God did what he did for you, when God became man, manifested in the flesh, when God came down and took your place on the cross, he expects a response to that. He just didn't do that because there was nothing else to do on Tuesday. He did that because he, he requires a response from us. Now, Take this home with you. Just, just, if you didn't get anything else of what I say, you want to get this. Take this home with you. In light of what I've just said and where we're going with this, the devil is more than willing to allow you to profess Christianity as long as you never practice your Christianity. And that's where we're at today. That's exactly where we're at. And you need to put that on your refrigerator Put it in your mirror. Put it wherever you people put things that you can see them. The devil is more than willing to allow you to profess your Christianity as long as you never effectively practice your Christianity. Now look at verse 32 here. Now hearken, now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for behold, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Now, the English language is a masterful language. Maybe not today because it's so corrupted today. But in all languages, languages reach a, a apex, a peak of their purity and when they're probably at their best. And, of course, for the English language, it would be somewhere between 1600 and probably, oh, latter part of the 1800s, somewhere in there. And uh, it was a masterpiece of language, the great literary classics of, of Hamlet or Shakespeare or all of those things that are held up as classics today. The thing that make them as classic is the classic literary style of the English that it used. You take Shakespeare and put it in modern 20th century 
language, it would be worthless. It would be absolutely a disaster. But it, it shows you that in history, there's an architecture to languages. And uh, the word, the, this is why we sell it back here. And, and if you don't have one, at some point, you ought to get one. This is why we, we carry and sell that Webster's 1828 edition of the dictionary. Uh, Noah Webster was one of our founding fathers. He wrote most of the curriculum for the public school system, and he's accredited with the first accepted of uh, dictionary. And his, his 1828 dictionary uh, is basically based on a King James 611 authorized version. And a lot of the words you find in there, he gets the definitions right out of the Bible. He was a saved man. And it makes, it, it makes his dictionary uh, uh, not only important for that, but it was written at a time when the English language was still in its purest form. And it's a great day. And you take the word hearken. He says there, now therefore hearken unto me. You take that word hearken. It means more than just to hear something that somebody says. It carries a stronger connotation of not just hearing, but giving attendance to. To heed to something. To regard something in a personal way. And then to respond to something in a personal way. Hearken isn't just, hey, listen to me. It's you hearken to it. You take it and do something with it. So in verse 32, he says, now therefore hearken unto me, you children. What he's saying here is, hey, I came down and did all of this, 8, 1 to 30, uh, 22 for you. I did all of this. You now understand it. I've taken you behind the scenes. I've shown you everything, how I did it, why I did it. Now, I expect a response from you. I expect you to hearken to what I just said. Therefore, hearken. <coughs> what he's talking about. It, it, it's to hear what is said, I get that, but, but then also to change yourself toward what you've just heard. And God expects us not only to hear what he says, but it to also act on it by doing something with it. You know, in any church, you'll always have people who go to church, but they never hearken to anything that's said. And that's true of any church. You'll never find a church that, that, that you don't have that element in it. It's just the way that it is. They will talk what, you know, they'll take what they like on a, out of a sermon, but uh, they will never take what they don't like out of a sermon. And, and that's just human nature of people who that's the way they are. Now, I want you to take this home. It's a two-for-one day today. <laughs> Let me say this to you. And I know you probably know this because you're really sharp people, but let me say this to you anyhow. You don't get changed in your life. I don't get changed in my life by the things that I like in the Bible. What changes me and what will change you is accepting and hearing and hearkening to the things in the Bible that I don't like. That's what has to happen. But we have people all through our lives that we're going to meet in every church. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or a Charismatic or a, a Presbyterian or a Episcopalian or whatever in the world you think you are. You're going to find it in all areas of organized religion. There's going to be people who only want to take what they like from it and what they don't like from it, they're not going to take. And that will be a problem for you sooner or later. Uh, you, you bring people to church and, and, and they'll come to one of our services, but they will go to other services. It isn't just us. It isn't just this church. It's any church. And they'll hear something that they don't agree with or something they don't like, and you'll say, well, how'd you like it? And they'll say something like this. Well, it was interesting. Well, it was, you know, it was, uh, it, was, it was not what I expected or, you know, and sometimes they'll be more even candid about it and say, you know what, I just, that's, that's, I really didn't, I, I, don't, I don't like that style of preaching. I don't like that style of ministry. Now, if you're ever going to get into ministry, you have to learn how to translate things. I don't translate the Bible. The Bible is as good a translation as you're ever going to get. But I have learned over the 40-some years how to translate what people say. Translation is, I heard some things there about me that I didn't like, and I'm not willing to change about me those things, so therefore I'm going to blame it on whoever preached or this or that or whatever the case may be, so I don't have to change. Right. 
the things in the Bible that we like will never change us. It's the things that we don't like that we have to hearken to. Proverbs says, the, he that loveth the, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but he that loveth the honeycomb, even the what? The bitter things are sweet. See? Got to love it all. I, well, you've all seen people. I've seen them. You've seen them. You know, they'll, I, uh, we, I've had them all my life, you know, and you've worked with people here. You've seen it too. They come in, you know, and they got their lives are upside down. They got all kinds of problems. They got this, they got that. And you, we try to help them. We put them into a deal and, and, you know, we try to get them discipled or try to get them this, try to get them that, whatever they need. You know, that's what we're here for. And, you know, as long as they're talking about changing their life, everything is fine. It's the moment you start to put things in their life that they have to deal with that actually changes their life, you start to have a problem. Because fundamentally, they don't want to change. Sometimes we don't want to change because it's, it's, there's too much change to change. Sometimes we don't want to change simply because of the fact that really we, we, we like where, the where we're at. We want to complain. How many times, I know this is true of me, so I know it's true of you. How many times have we complained about things that we didn't like, but we were not willing to change what we had to change to change what we didn't like? We're all that way. That's just the way we are. We're fickle. And, and I'm telling you, there will, there will, be, there will, be, there will be times when, uh, uh, that you're going to find that everything doesn't work out that way. And you're going to find people who just are going to get caught up in those things and caught up in, in all of the stuff that goes along with it. And my page is blue out here, and I can't even find where I'm supposed to be now. So I'm just going to start over again. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to... Where am I? I know I'm not there. Oh, here I am. Hi. Good to see you today. Look at verse 32. The last part of verse 32. For blessed are they that keep my ways. Oh, there's one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible. You like word studies, do you? The way man will go. You know, the way man will go in life, there's only two ways. There's only two ways. I mean, you may go to the store and maybe 600 different shades of lipstick you've got to choose from. You may go to a liquor store and find out there's 45 different things of beer you've got to choose from. I hope you don't. You may, go, you may go in life and go to buy a car and find out there's 45 different variations of that car you want to doubt. But I'm telling you, in life, there's only two ways you can go. You're going to go God's way or you're going to go your way. And in Proverbs chapter 8 in his invitation, he's, he's asking, hey, look, aren't you tired of your way? Has your way really produced anything meaningful in your life? And he's looking at this thing and he's saying, you know what? After I came down and I left the glory of heaven, came down and died on the cross, did what I did, God becoming man and coming down because I loved you to give you my salvation, I expect a response from you. And he's saying, hearken to my ways. For blessed are they that keep my ways. Now, you know what the real problem is with us, folks? I'm a, and this is a very practical message today. But you know what I really, if we're saved this morning, you know what I really, our fundamental problem is? And this is true of me just as much as it is you. Is those two ways, God's ways and man ways, can never coexist to any value in life. It has to be one or the other. We as God's people spend our whole life trying to reconcile these two ways. To make them work together. And it simply will not work that way. This is why God's people have the issues that they have. It's not complicated. You got your way and God's way. I'm not willing to let my way go. I'm not totally willing to go God's way. So you know what I'll do? I'll just get 50-50. 50 over here, 50 over there and match them together. It'll never work. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3 says. It isn't going to work. You can, never rec- you can never organize your way with God's way. Genesis chapter 24, verse 27 says, I being in the way, the Lord led. It says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
Psalms 5, 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Psalms 37, 5 says, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He says in Psalms 119, verse 27, Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. Psalms 27, 11 says, I teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a, plain, in a plain path. Plain path. Nothing complicated about it. Nothing at all. A plain path. Psalm 37, 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. Psalms 119, 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. You see, when we hearken to what God says, and we just don't hear it, but we allow it to change us to the point where we leave our way and go God's way. He says, blessed are they that keep my ways. Now, I can tell you one thing from personal experience. A lot of things I preach in the Bible, I don't have any experience on. So I just have to rely on the Bible's experience. But there's a lot of things in life in the Bible in my 64 years I've got some experience with. And I can say one thing about this for personal experience. If you want a blessed life, if you want a content life, if you want a life with inner peace, and I'm not saying you're not going to have any struggles. I'm not saying you won't have issues that you have to deal with and you have to, you have to deal. I'm not saying that. But if you want a blessed life, a content life, a life of joy and fellowship on an unequal, on a, an unparalleled level that will override all the issues of life, just get in your life going God's way and not your way anymore. That'll solve just about every problem you have. And I've had people tell me all the time. I hear this all the time. Bob, the Bible doesn't work for me. No, I haven't. And I understand where they're coming from. They'll say, you know, the Bible doesn't work for me. You get up there and you preach about perfect peace and a peace that passes all understanding. And, and you know, and I hear all that stuff. But, you know, what? my life is a living hell. And I tell them, I try to get them to see. The reason for that is, is because you simply want to try to tie in your way with his way. You simply want to bring in the things that you want to do with the things that he wants you to do and try to make those things work. And it will never work that way. Bible principles in all that you do in life. A principled life organizing everything that you do based on how God views it, based on what God thinks about it. That's where the blessings of God lies. And trying to get there another way and trying to try to keep some things in your life that you want to do and then bring in other things over here that God wants you to do so you can have the best of both worlds, it ain't going to happen. You can't have an unsaved boyfriend or girlfriend and put in the principles of God and be happy. You can't live like the world on this side and then go to church on Sunday morning on the other side and be happy. You may think in your mind it will work. I'm telling you right now by personal experience, it will not work. The two are not conducive. They won't go together. So you go through your whole life and you struggle and you have bad marriages, bad relationships, bad everything. You go nowhere in life spiritually. And then if that wasn't enough, you pass those things right on to your children. And off it goes. You cannot go your way and his way and put it together and have it work. Verse 33. Hear instructions and be wise, and for, refuse it not. Now, here's another good word if you like word studies. It's the word instruction. Here it's a phrase, hear instruction, but the word instruction itself. I don't know if you know this or not, but the word instruction is found 33 times in your Bible. 25 of those times is found in the book of Proverbs. Now, I can't speak for you, but once I see that, do you know what I, what, what I take from that? I take that the book of Proverbs as my handbook on God's instructions on the issues of life to me. I mean, who wouldn't deduce that? 
I mean, we went through Proverbs chapter 1 when we started way back in the first five verses. It said, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instructions of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtly to the simple, to the young man uh, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will crease in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. But it starts with receiving instructions. But Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, just a little bit farther down, says, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. See? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. No, you're right. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. And the last thing it says is instructions in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So he says down through here, here instructions. Don't refuse it. Verse 33 says, last part, be wise and refuse it not. Book of Proverbs is God's book of instructions to his son, you and me. Simply about a wise man and a foolish man. The whole Bible's built around those two concepts. You know, in dealing with people and people in or in my life, that's all I never, I never, never, never. I never hold anything against anybody that they did. It doesn't matter to me. Simply because, now it may alter your life to a place where it's completely different, but on my side of the fence, all sin is sin. On my side of the fence, you know what? If you knew what I knew about me today, you wouldn't even come and hear me preach. And if I knew what you knew about you today, I wouldn't show up to preach to you. You see, the bottom line is that we're all fallible. I, I, Christians really bug me that have this self-righteous attitude about the fact, well, you sin, so therefore I don't sin, or I do sin, but not sins like that, so you're over here and I'm over here. That's, that's crazy, man. We're all no good. The fact that I'm standing up here in front of you is just illustrating the point that I'm no good worse than you are. You can look at me. I can't look at all of you at the same point in time. We're all got problems. We're all in a mess. But the difference is that a wise man, the Bible's about a wise man and a foolish man. It's not about the mistakes we make. Now, I'll, I'll give you, the longer you get in the Word of God, the less mistakes you can make. I understand that. But you're not going to be mistake-free, nor am I. But the difference is that a wise man will make his mistakes but he will hearken to instruction and he will grow through that mistake. Where a fool will make the same mistake, but then he gets prideful about it, he justifies himself, and he, he, he refuses to take instructions, so he'll never learn anything in life. So the one guy learns from his mistakes and grows through it, the other one refuses to grow through it, won't take instructions, so he goes through life repeating them over and over and over and over again. Look at verse 34. Blessed is the man that hearkeneth, that, that, excuse me, that heareth me, watcheth daily at my gate, waiting at the post of my doors. Blessed is the man. Now, I would think that if I would just, I'll save myself the time of doing this, but if I would start here with Barb and work all the way through here and come around over here and up through here and get Crystal and everybody back through here and over here, start with Zach, go down through here, get Maddie and all those, get Kelly and all through that, get all these guys over here, go get Joe over here, get John over here and all those over here. And I'll ask you the same question. Do you want to be blessed of the Lord? Everybody would say yes. I've never met a person in my life who said, I don't want God's blessing. Why, even unsaved people want blessings of God. They don't get it, but they want it. Now, I'm a simple kind of guy. I, I, am. I, mean, I wish there was more depth to me. You, you, you'd appreciate me more. But I'm just a stupid little guy. I just look at things at life, and I try to make them as uncomplicated as I can make them because I'm not very complicated. I, I, you know, I learned a long time ago. I, I'm good at taking things apart. I'm terrible putting them back together. But, I, but I, I just look at things, and I just, you know, I mean, it says here, blessed is the man. And I know I want to be blessed, and I know everybody here wants the blessings of God in their life. But do you know how you have those blessings in your life? I mean, 
I think most of us have a mindset of what I call a clipboard Christianity. You get saved, you go to church, you do things you're supposed to do, don't do the things you're not supposed to do, and then suddenly, somewhere after one or two, three years, on that big golden clipboard up in heaven, your name's on the top of the list. Now you've paid your dues, you've been to church long enough, now you've, and so your name comes up on a big golden clipboard. And the angel looks at that, and the Lord says that today, Bob Alexander's on the top of the list. He's going to get wisdom today. He's been there long enough now. He's going to get this. He's going to get that. And he's going to get the blessings of God. We're going to put him now. He's been, he's, his name's up on the clipboard, and we're going to go right down that list. And this list goes for the next two months. So everybody on there, by the end of the next two months, is going to have it. That's how people think it happens. It doesn't happen that way. Do you know that the term blessed is the man is found 12 times in your Bible? Throughout the Bible, 12 times. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I would think that if I really wanted the blessings of God, the first thing that I would have to find out is, is how to get those blessings. So the first thing I would do is find out in the Bible where these 12 things are that says that blessed is the man, because he didn't just put that in there because he had some space to fill it up, so he said, write this down. He's telling you and me that if you want to have the blessings of God, you find these 12 things that he said, blessed is the man, and you work at putting them in your life, guess what? Da-da! You'll have the blessings of God in your life. Now, how simple is that? That's not complicated. That's not hard. I didn't even go to the Greek. Blessed is the man is found 12 times in your Bible. 12 different things he tells you and me to do to put in our life. And if we follow in life, they will lead to those blessings of God in your life. And yet, God's people won't take 20 minutes in a concordance to find out what they are. I'm predicting right now, Thursday night Bible study. Somebody will raise their hand and ask me, Bob, what are those 12 things that blessed is the man's all about? If I really wanted the blessings of God, I would not wait till Thursday. I would get me a concordance and I would find out what they are. And it's no, no wonder that there's 12. The Bible says salvation is of the Jew. All the blessings that you and I have as New Testament Christians are found in Abraham, father of the Jews, the 12 tribes. Look at the last part of verse 34. Watching daily at my gate, waiting at the post of the door, getting up every morning, expecting God to do something with you that day. Watching for God to do something with you that day. Waiting for God to use you some way, somehow. Getting up in the morning with the pure anticipation of being right there when God makes his move and that you're going to be part of it. Now, Allow me to get warm and fuzzy with you for just a moment here because I know I'm going to ring a lot of bells here. I'm a dog lover. I've always had a dog by the time I was that big. I've lost two of the best three labs that I had here a while back and I made a vow that I wasn't going to get it anymore because it's just too hard when you've got to lose them because I get attached to them. This is stupid, I know, but at least I get something out of it. You won't get anything out of it probably. But that lasted about, I don't know, four or five months, and I had to get two more. (laughs) But believe it or not, I've learned so much about my relationship with God from those little guys and my relationship with them. And I think it's probably true of most people who love dogs and love animals, not to be dogs, but dogs are what I'm most familiar with. But you know what? When it comes to those two dogs I got back there at home, I'm all they care about. They don't care about you. <laughs> well, they may wag their tail and come over, and, and, but they don't. At the end of the day, it's me. <laughs> they look to me for everything. They're dependent on me for everything. I got a big 
110-pound male lab, and, and they love these little bones, and he's so goofy that when that bone will get, they say that bone, he's playing around. He just walks around, throws it down. I don't know what he's thinking he's doing. He just picks it up and throws it. I mean, it's just over and over again. But that thing will slide over, and if it gets that far under that chair, for whatever reason, he won't get it. <laughs> you know what he does? He turns around, looks at me, and barks for me to get it for him. I'll be in the middle of the deepest thought of my message for Sunday. That's why sometimes it goes off track a little bit. I'll be in the deepest part of putting something together, and he's over there, and there's a bone right over there, over there, down there, and, and, and he won't get it. I mean, his neck is, is long enough to get it. He, he, could, he could route that chair over if he wanted to, but he simply will not do it because he looks at me and he says, hey, I'm dependent on you to get what I need. So, yeah, I get up and I get it. There's times I've heard him bark on the other side where I can't see it, and I know the bark. I know, I know the bark between somebody's here and get my bone. <laughs> and I know if I just say to him, shut up, he'll just keep barking. So I just get up and get it. And sure enough, I'll walk around here and I'll say, where is it? And he'll, he'll be standing right at it, looking at it and looking at me, looking at it, and then I see it. They love me no matter what I do. They love me unconditionally. And and I'll tell you, I love my dogs, but I whack my dogs sometimes. Now, my big one, my big male's got a two-ticket rear end. I mean, it's about that wide. And you hit him with your hand, it hurts your hand a lot more than it hurts him. But I've been, I, I have, I, I, they've been out there sometime, and sometimes, you know, you're in a hurry, and, they, and they're out there, and they're just dinking around, they've got to smell everything, you know, and they've got to check everything out, and, and I'm over there going, and, or they'll do something really dumb, or they'll get something, I have, till they get past that chewing stage, I don't know how many phone earbuds I lost. It's my own fault, I'd lay them leave and understand, TV remote controls, I order them by a case. <laughs> I got the website where I can just buy them because they would chew them up. And I would get so mad. It's my fault, but they ought to know better. And I'd smack that. One time I came down to my, my only remote was gone. And I can't operate the stupid television because of technology without the hand deal. Whatever happened to two rabbit ears and just twisting the dial, man? And I, I know I was wrong. And you can turn me into PETA if you want and all that crap. But I whacked that dog, man. I said, what are you do it! Now whack that dog. <laughs> Went over there and looked at that thing in pieces, and I swear on everything I know is holy. I heard that one dog say to the other one, Job 13, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? <laughs> they can't stand to be out of my sight or me out of theirs. Every once in a while, I'll take them out in the backyard, take them off their leash, close it up there, and they just run around, and they're playing, and I'm standing there, and then I'll get preoccupied, I want to check something, and I'll walk around the side of the house, and I know they can't get out, and I'm walking around the side of the house, and next thing I know, I'm looking down, there's two dogs. Where where'd you go? Where are you? At home, when they crash and sleep, when I'm working at my desk downstairs... They will wrap themselves around my chair so if that chair moves, that they wake up. They don't want me going anywhere without them. They don't want me making a movement. If they're sitting on the couch over there and I'm working, we're about from where these kids are from here, and I'm working on something, and, I, and I'll turn around looking, they're both standing just looking at me. <laughs> or when they lay down on the floor, they'll lay facing me with honest to goodness. One eye is open. I'm not kidding you. I don't know how they do it. I can't do it. I tried sleeping that way one night. I stayed up half the night because I had half the eye open. <laughs> any movement, any scratching of my head, any getting up, and both heads are up, boy. I cannot tell you the times that I've sat on that couch with those two little guys in my lap licking my face off and wanting to be next to me, and I'd say, oh, God, make me just like them with you. Lord, make me just like them with you. Make me them like them that any movement you do, any change, any direction, any opportunity, any place you go or do, let me not miss where you go. 
God, let me wrap myself around your chair that whenever you move or whenever you scratch your head or whatever you do, it wakes me up and alerts me and let me stay focused on you, Lord. Let me be at your gates waiting at the post of my door for what you want me to do. That's what he's talking about. Verse 35 says, For who so findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Now, there's the two aspects of life that everybody wants, even when they don't totally understand it, whether you're saved or you're lost. You want a quality of a good life, and you want favor of the Lord. The Bible principles I give you here, when you apply them, they will bring a quality to your life that is unbelievable. They bring a quality of life that, will, that the world simply doesn't have. Now you have the ability to have an answer to 98% of what comes your way. And when you can't get the answer, you just rest in the fact that God does have the answer. Favor of the Lord. Not that you don't have issues in your life. You'll have tremendous issues. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But the favor and and the principle is found if God is for you, who can be against you? The principles in John 4, 4 is greater is he that's in you is in the world. Listen, when God's hand is on your life, there is no weapon of war that is prepared against you that will promise. Isaiah 54, 7, prosper. Look at verse 36. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. And all that hate me love death. Now, here's the final warning, and it's a strong one. I always think of something like this. I think about that verse over in Job. You know, there's some verses that you hear in life that when you find yourself in situations or, or you deal with people, those verses pop up because they, people represent those verses. I, 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 I hate to go to funerals where, where people are probably lost when they died. And I, I, don't, I don't enjoy it. I, I go for the families and try to be of some support, but it always bothers me when any person, whether I know them or not, any person dies and goes to hell. But I want to tell you something. I read that story over there in Luke chapter 16, oh, oh man, a thousand years ago when I just got into this thing, and there's a phrase in there that just sticks with me that every time I go to a funeral... And I know the person was probably lost. As I sit there, I sit there, and I, no matter what I say, or whether I smile, or who I hug, or how I say I love you, or I preach right encourage you, in my mind that verse comes up, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. That thing's a powerful thing to me. And I just, you know, it just there's certain things, certain things in the Bible that people, when they do them or who they are, illustrate that. And it says here that he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul, and all they that hate me love death. And the final warning here, and I see this all the time, I've seen people in my life that I've worked with or I've seen them or I know them and they go through struggles and struggles in life and to me, just like that verse over there about Luke 16, Job 9, 4 comes into my mind. It says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered. And all I think about when I see somebody or I deal with that, they, they may be walking out of my office and it wasn't a good meeting. They may be going someplace and doing something else or what they want to do. doesn't matter. But in my mind, I see that and I think of that one last part of that verse. Who hath hardened himself against him and prospered? You won't. You simply won't. Now that one verse there in Proverbs 9 is for a saved man and a lost man. It's the single simple reason our lives is in tremendous messes sometimes. And it's not that we don't go to church. It's not that we don't read the Bible. It's not that we don't read the right Bible. It's not that we don't do some things for God, and it's certainly not the fact that that necessarily we're a bad person. But it's just a simple fact that you refuse to take his instruction and hearken to them. It's a simple fact that we, let the, we don't let the principles of God run our lives His way. We always try to got to run it our way. And until we face that and change that, we will never prosper no matter how bad we want to or how bad we hurt. We think that God has a hurt scale. When we reach 12, He does something. 
No, he doesn't. We get into the things we get into because we decide to go our way, won't hearken to the instructions, and then we want God to bail us out, and God will forgive us, and God will do some tremendous things for us, but doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to come down and bail you out. You can live a promiscuous life and do everything that you want to do out there with the world in a sexual context and and wind up and get AIDS. You can cry to God and God will forgive you. God will wipe and put it all under the blood, but he won't take your AIDS away. There's consequences to things that we do. There'll be no quality of life and no favor of the Lord, just an endless life of heartache and trials and troubles and anxiety and stress and depression and problems, empty promises and endless misery. You know, it's no wonder, and I, it's hard to believe for me to believe this, but it's no wonder that God's people get to the place where they will take their own life and commit suicide. I mean, I can understand that unsaved man do, and I don't suggest it, and it's a terrible thing. But I've never understood, yet I understand, why a child of God who's saved has the Holy Spirit of God living inside them would get so desperate in their life that they would think that there's no other way out than ending your own life. And yet God's people get to that point in their life. You know why? Because suicide is just the final end of you going your way instead of his way. That's all. That's all it is. Seven suicides in the Bible. People ministry this year, we're going to hit them about the second phase. We'll get into the second month. We're going to go through all seven of them so you understand it. Then the last part of verse 36. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Now, I must say that's a very strong opinionated verse there, that everybody that hates God loves death. Now, when I read something like that, I I know that he's saying something here, but probably not exactly what he's saying here, so you've got to look for what he's saying here somewhere. (laughs) Let me show you. It's better to show you how this thing works. I've never met a sinner, no matter how vile he or she was, that ever didn't prefer to live over dying. I mean, I just never have. So let's see what he's saying here. I think the New Testament print will put it into the right context. First thing I want you to do is, I'll read it again. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Now take your Bible and turn on Romans chapter 6. I'll show you how this, what he's saying here in a New Testament context. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Now here, look what it says here. He said up here that all they that hate me love death. All right, look at verse verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, the first thing we see that the wages of sin is death. Now in the Bible, you have a lot of good character studies. And character studies tend to not only teach you about the person, but many times they'll define things for you in the Bible. And one of the most wickedest men that you'll ever study in the Bible was a guy found in the book of Numbers whose name was Balaam. And uh, when you get into the New Testament and you do a study on Balaam, you'll find the Bible says three things about Balaam in the New Testament. The first thing you'll find in Jude chapter 1 verse 11 is it talks about the error of Balaam. And the heir of Balaam, the mistake that he made that in the story back in Numbers that he forgot the covenant that God made with Abraham with Israel. That's what he forgot. That was the heir of Balaam. Then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, you're going to find the doctrine of Balaam. And the doctrine of Balaam is defined for you there in Revelation 2.15 is that he taught the children of, of, of God to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And then the third one, it's the way of Balaam. We've been talking about going God's way, going your way. Balaam didn't go God's way. Balaam went his way. And in the way of Balaam, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. It says that the way of Balaam was that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved the wages of sin. 
So when the Bible says that all that hate me love death, he's not necessarily saying that if you hate God, you really love to die. He's saying that when a man loves the unrighteousness of this world, he also loves the byproduct of loving sin, which is death. And death in the Bible is separation from God eternally. Because that's what the unrighteousness will produce at the end. Death, separation from God. So when you love the wages of unrighteousness, when you love the wages of sin, then you love death. Because that wages of sin like Balaam and the wages of unrighteousness that Balaam committed is going to lead to eternal separation from God, which is death in the Bible, spiritual death. So in closing this great chapter... We now understand that the first part of that chapter has been an incredible, absolutely incredible laying out of material around the two issues about Jesus Christ, who he was, God coming down and becoming man, and God separating himself from his son on the cross for you and me. And God, therefore, requires a response to that. So he goes through that and he lays the whole thing out and he takes the last five or six verses that we've looked at today and you know what he does? He does what he always does. He gives you an invitation to accept his instructions because God is not willing that any should perish. He gives you, if you're saved, the ability and the invitation to come and put those things in in, in, in your life that you need to change your way, to hearken to his instruction, to quit going your way and start going his way. To let God and the things of God change about you. To put you in the mindset that you realize that it's not the good things in the Bible that are going to change you. It's hearkening to the things that you and I don't appreciate in the Bible. Every time you go out of a church and a preacher steps on your toes, you ought to thank God for it. You know why? Because that preacher's foot size stepping on your toes is a lot smaller than God's foot size when he steps on your toes. But because he loves you. He's chosen a preacher to tell you what you need to do so God doesn't have to come down and meet you at I-435 at 2 o'clock in the morning. But you have to hearken to it. It's a great chapter. Not only telling you what God is and who He is and what Christ did and all the things of who He was, but also giving that invitation to you now that you can have the instructions of a father that you can have everything. You can have a blessed life. You now have all the tools in this little thing that I've just given you today that you could go home and you could find out how to be blessed. You could find out all the aspects of everything you need and you can accept that invitation. Well, next week, we're going to talk about our youth and I'm going to show you where this thing is going and, and, uh, and, and show you one of the most incredible things that uh, you ever see. And uh, we'll explain the whole process. We'll go through it. Don't forget uh, 